Welcome to Beyond Barbarossa, the first English-language podcast in the world that focuses on the Eastern Front of World War II. I'm your host, Scott Burry. I'm podcasting to you today from the new Redbeard studio on traditional Algonquin Anishinaabe territory, also called Ottawa, Canada. And I'm thrilled to uh, bring back my guest, the author who also focuses on the Eastern Front, Dr. David Stahl of the University of New South Wales in Canberra, Australia. We started our conversation in the episode you heard last week. So last week, David Stahl explained that he didn't really see studying the Eastern Front of the Second World War as a specialization because he sees himself studying and having written about the war in Europe, which was mostly fought on the Eastern Front. The numbers of people and equipment and weapons and ammunition and casualties all show that very clearly. It was fought on the Eastern Front. It was not just one of many areas of, of operations and of conflict. And as he put it, if you were a German soldier in the Wehrmacht, the German army, in 1941, you probably were serving on the Eastern Front. It was the default setting. Now, David also told us that what drew him, what sparked his interest in this side of things, was uh, the scale of the war in the East, the numbers of men and uh, weapons and so on involved. 150 German divisions alone, he pointed out and also the geographic scale, the sheer distances involved. This interest led David to uh, move to Germany for 10 years, where he dove deep into the warehouses of documents, the daily reports from those 150 divisions. And this initial research led to his first book, Operation Barbarossa and Germany's Defeat in the East. And last week, he posed the question that drove his research, what he came to ask as he read report after report. If the German army was so awesome, was this armored juggernaut wiping out the Red Army, where's their victory? So where we left off last week was uh, David's description of some of the facts that surprised him that he found as he dove into those documents. Uh, the realities of supply and logistics that, as he put it, undercut the German invasion that were not the Red Army. The difficulties of transporting necessary supplies, not just of ammunition and people and food, but also of spare parts for hundreds of different kinds of vehicles. And the story he left us with last week about how uh, in August 1941, so this is less than two months into the invasion, in a war that would last for four years, hurrying Heinz Guderian, commander of of Panzer Group II, asked for hundreds of replacement engines for his tanks, which the factories just didn't have because they didn't make more engines than tanks. It's one engine per tank. This story is emblematic of the challenge the Germans learned to face, the vast numbers and distances, which led me to the big question, which I think all of us listeners, all of us history buffs who aren't necessarily professional historians are wondering about. 
and want to ask. So I put this big question to David Stahl. Your first book concluded that Operation Barbarossa failed essentially in August 1941 because Hitler decided to divert Panzer Groups 2 and 3, which had been in the center driving toward Moscow, respectively south and north to Kiev and Leningrad. So that leads me to my big question. Uh, and I know hindsight is 2020. I know it's impossible to really look at hypotheticals. But if Hitler had not made that decision, if the Germans had continued focusing on Moscow in August 1941, kept Panzer Groups 2 and 3 in the center, could they have succeeded? Yeah, sure. I think that's uh, one of the great sort of what ifs of 1941. And I mean, you're also correct. Uh, we, we only know what, what happened. Um, but if we explore that hypothetical, I think there are some very big questions that there's simply no answers to in any of the files. Like, we know that they will subsequently, after the Battle of Kiev, push on at the, um, uh, at the end of September with Operation Typhoon. So a lot right. of people say, oh, that would have just been the continuation, but it wouldn't have been the continuation in August for two key reasons. One, I talked before about the reconditioning of the tanks and the needs for these engines and all of that. That's happening in that interim period. While some tanks are off doing Guderian's drive to the south and so on, they are desperately trying to get supplies forward for this reconditioning. And that's still happening with Herman Hort and so on, although he's lost one of his Panzer Corps to go up to the north, mm -hmm. exactly as you say. The other thing that's happening is the armies in the center are fighting a tooth and nail battle against Soviets. Soviets are really pushing at them and they are straining to hold this, this, the, the Ninth Army. Um, in particular, and they have some real crises there. We don't really talk about it very much because people don't really research the individual histories of specific armies. But they, are, if if we if we just said, oh, why wouldn't they just drive through? What's actually happening is a lot of Soviet reserves are being basically uh, destroyed on Soviet on, on German defensive lines. The Soviets, on the one hand, are desperately trying to drive into the German forces, and they're really straining at the bit. I mean, there's points at which in Bockstyre, he's the commander of Army Group Center, that he's fearful that the whole thing's just going to collapse. It's not just a few local offensives. They are serious attacks. And the Germans would otherwise have to drive into this. And the other pro problem that they're going to have for doing that is resources. They are trying desperately to extend the rail supply up to the furthest point of the German advance. Without that rail supply, everything depends on a truck. And the trucks, for reasons we discussed before about the, uh, the utility of these trucks, they are breaking down all the time. And the aggregate sum total of a truck's content is actually the greater the distance from the railhead, less and less because it has to consume its own resources. In other words, how right. much fuel does a truck have? Not enough to drive hundreds of kilometers, especially when you're very low gear, sandy roads. It's not always straight lines. They're having no. to go around burnt out villages and things. 
detours, all the rest of it, partisan areas and so on, because a lot of captured Soviet, sorry, not captured Soviet troops. They're not really partisans, but they're operating in the rear. So there's a lot of delays there and the trucks just aren't the solution. They know that. They know that before the war. But the problem is the the gauge is different, as I'm sure many of your readers would know. The gauge is different in the Soviet Union and therefore they're having to, to change that gauge. Now, initially the Germans, they always seem to plan on a very optimistic basis. Hey, this is super simple. The gauge is different. We know that. You just put the pins up right very simple process push them closer together nail the pins back down again and the trains run there's no problem with doing this conversion process that's what they plan for except for the reality in the east is two things have been happening one the soviets are very good at destroying all their own uh, infrastructure scorched earth is a reality the, no- the other thing is a lot of the destruction is caused by the luftwaffe while this is still in enemy territory they've been bombing trains and it's destroying everything and then these conversion troops get there and say we need everything. We need the, yeah. the whole need thing. Needs to be yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The whole thing. So uh, there's just not the resourcing. Uh, in fact, they're very poorly resourced for managing that process. And they're very much second rate troops without very good equipment and so on. And they're trying desperately to move that further forward to the front. Now, that's what's going to continue to happen right through the summer. And Basically, by the time Typhoon begins, uh, one of the reports I remember from one of the armies, I think it's the fourth army, Kluger's army, he says, look, we're only existing hand to mouth right now. There's nothing in, in reserve, right? Now, to launch mm-hmm. an offensive, you need to have you need to have stockpiles. You're going to project yourself further to the east hundreds of kilometers, and you need fuel, you need ammunition, you need food you need all the rest of it and if they're living hand to mouth and you can well imagine they are they're trying to support you know not just hundreds of thousands they got three million men in the east there's a lot of supplies that need to come they're only just reaching them and then they're going to project themselves and this is at the end of september so two things are about to change one is that they're about to launch themselves further which they couldn't have just done in august they just didn't have anything built in terms mm. of infrastructure to support this but two the other thing that's going to change is the weather's about to change and of yeah. course when you start getting worse roads and so on uh it just complicates the the logistics again now that's just talking about logistics let's just consider something else it's a little difficult if people can't really visualize these things but imagine in august if we are seeing a bulge in the eastern front in the center and that bulge exists because army group center has a overwhelming armored uh, support and they have projected themselves further to the east and if the argument is well let's just keep driving on moscow from where they are at that point in august to moscow is another 300 kilometers and south of that is basically the central ukraine that right. hasn't been conquered there are uh, the, the single largest soviet front the soviet southwestern front it has five mm-hmm. armies in it that's all sitting there on the Dnieper bend right and it is not going to be destroyed by Army Group South because they're really on the other side of that river and they haven't got the panzer forces of uh, the center. They've got uh, Kleist's first panzer group, but it's smaller than Guderian's. You know, there would also be a question about just seizing Moscow itself. I think that's a whole right. separate discussion. Um, you know, the Germans would need to bring an enormous amount of force to bear there, and that would be extremely dangerous if you have a very long, very exposed and very weak southern flank, as well as a northern Mm. flank by that point. So the virtue of clearing the flanks uh, for all kinds of reasons, not to mention the great success that the Battle of Kiev was, um, Mm. and the unlocking that does for for the Donetsk and all of these resources that Germany will want, you know, I think it makes sense to ultimately do what they did. And uh, yeah, and the alternative is poses a, a lot of question about how would they sustain this both logistically and militarily? Yeah. But so 
it, it seems then there's almost there's no right answer, right? Because if you divert and you protect the flanks as you have to protect the flanks, right? You don't want to be exposed to it the way they would have been. And yes, uh, Kiev was this huge uh, victory in terms of uh, territory gained, resources gained. The, the numbers of, of Soviet soldiers captured was 700,000. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, a staggering. I was going to say the German reporting, we have these figures of 650,000, I think is their official figure. I've often asked people, how did they measure this though? Is it done on a system mm. of averages? Are they actually counting them? How do they actually get to these figures? Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. It's a, it's a, it's a staggering victory. However you yeah. count it. Right. Yeah. And so they had to do that, but that diverted the forces away mm. and slowed them down even more but if they hadn't done that, then yeah, they would have been exposed. So it doesn't seem it wasn't. I guess the big question was, was it ever possible in any way for Germany to achieve that objective of, of taking Leningrad and Moscow uh, and having the, the uh, Soviet Union government, the, the communist government fall? And that would give them Lebensraum. Yeah, look, that's a that's such a hard question to answer. Yeah. I, 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 well, also because you know uh, counterfactuals are just by nature, uh, yeah. you know, aren't something you can't prove. But the look, I, I don't know of any scenario, and I, you know, it, it is fun to have those. Uh, I always try to steer my students away from it in the tutorials. No, come on, guys, let's stick to what happened. But I love those conversations at the the cafe or the pub afterwards, where we can we can untangle all these or just you know throw ideas out there. Look, I don't know of a of a solution. There are so many things that compromise what the Germans are trying to achieve. They're just endemic to the German army um, mm. that there's not really, you know, even if we started earlier and said, okay, we're not in late August, we're, we're in 22nd of June, or even go back a year before that and say, you can plan your own camp. What else do we do? There's not a whole lot of reserves that Germany has. Mm -hmm. And the reality of the war that they're fighting, um, especially if you factor in things like, maybe to tie it right to the very beginning of this discussion, where we talked about war of annihilation. When mm -hmm. you start fighting a war like that, perhaps that's what we're seeing very much now with the Russians in Ukraine. When you start fighting a war like that, you get an entirely different response on the other side. And if the idea of military action is to compel your enemy to stop fighting or to give up, Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things I think that, that, that the Nazis are doing there is they are setting everyone up against them. Um, it almost doesn't mm -hmm. matter whether you like Stalin or communism or his brand of communism. It, it doesn't matter at all. It doesn't even matter if you, you know, care for a, a Soviet state as maybe Georgians may not, or, you know, people in the Baltic states or Ukrainians might not. At the end of the day, it's going to be better than what the Nazis are offering when one gets an idea of what they actually offer. And, and that's not something that's clear to Soviet citizens before the war, because, you know, German occupation in the First World War, well, wasn't all that bad necessarily. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, history there with the Bolsheviks coming on the scene and doing yes. horrendous things. So it couldn't be worse, could it? Except a couple of months in, it starts to become quite clear, oh no, it's much worse. Uh, they are wholesale mass murdering people. And yes, they're mass murdering Jews, but you don't have to be a Jew to be uh, a target if you happen to be live in an area that's partisan rich or, um, you know, you're just a, a Soviet soldier, a Russian, whatever, captured. These guys are discovering what's happening behind the lines, you know, mass murder of, of 
of POWs, not because they're necessarily starvation. shooting them. The starvation, it's the same end, right? Um, whether yeah. someone's lining up against a wall or just starving you to death, it's uh, it's still horrendous. Um, and as that filters back and it does filter back, it suddenly becomes apparent to people when we know this by about sort of people, not me doing these kinds of studies, but people who've done these things on Soviet civilian or Soviet military, you know, what do they really think? It's not just because propaganda hits you that you think that way. It's because propaganda tells you one thing and it turns out what a lot of these studies confirm is when you're in the breadline or when you're in the ranks, if the guy next to you tells you it's exactly the way the propaganda is telling it, that's what you actually believe. Then yeah. you see that that alignment and you start believing it. That's a very telling analysis, especially these days. But right now, let's take a short break. Did you know that the cappuccino was invented by a Ukrainian? Or that many first names, like Philip and Agatha, were brought to Western Europe by Ukrainian princesses? Or that a Ukrainian was the first female given the rank of officer in a modern army? Well, if you didn't, and even if you did, you can learn more about my podcast, Wandering the Edge, a podcast about Ukrainian history with a spot of travel. And all in English. And if you like Beyond Barbarossa as much as I do, because, well, it makes my life a whole lot easier since I don't have to do any episodes deep diving into the Eastern Front of the Second World War, please take a listen to Wandering the Edge for a deep dive into Ukrainian history, culture, and traditions. Find out more on wanderingtheedge.net. And now let's get back to Scott exploring and explaining the Eastern Front of the Second World War. And I'm back with Dr. David Stahl, author of several books on the Second World War in Europe, and his contention that the war in the East, that is the Eastern Front, was not a specialization, but that's just where most of the Second World War in Europe was happening. Do you think that any of Germany's professional soldier in class, uh, either at the, the very senior commanders or maybe the next level down, did did they actually believe they could achieve those objectives or were they just you know trying not to incur hitler's wrath yeah no i think that there's a lot of self-belief um and even where i mean is it there's two things going on here at least as far as i can see it on the one hand they have professional training these are general staff officers mm -hmm. what does that mean if you go right back to the 19th century they're codifying the military experience they're they're making it mathematical they want to so x number of men x number of provisions x number of tonnage x number of vehicles they're military professionals and they do that. Now, if you go through the Barbarossa planning, a lot of that staff work is quite good. That is pointing to big problems. The problem is the human component. So they see, hey, we need to have this many. I mean, Wagner is one of these guys and he says, uh, you know, we're only going to be able to sustain basically half the number of guys to get to the Dnieper rivers, which is about three, 400 kilometers in. 
And after that, we can't really project ourselves much further, not in any real way. And that's because mm. he's following staff work and it's probably people under him doing that staff work. These are intelligent guys. You don't get into the general staff without being a cut above. So congratulations. They're very good at what they do and they're doing the staff work and they're the numbers and they're the reports. It's what do you do with all of that? And that's where you start to see people like Helder, who is the chief of the army general staff in the planning phases. And he is seeing some of these figures. He is getting some of this, but what does he do? Does he say, yeah, Hitler, we're not going to be able to do this. This is just not going to work the way mm -hmm. you think it is. His idea is, no, no, no. Well, there'll be all these big border battles. That'll be difficult. But that's where we project ourselves into the east and crush those Soviet armies on the borders. And then we'll basically, well, we'll just we'll just figure it out then. We'll just, we'll just drive into the east because there'll be nothing really to oppose us. That's a very right. optimistic um, assessment of how this might go. And, and if it doesn't do take into account the reserves that the Soviets had and the armies, you know, in, in Eastern Russia or you know, Siberia in the Far East. hundred percent. That that's right. Then it's, yeah, that's right. They, they're not, they haven't, they've only got 2.7 million guys in the Western military districts. That's still a hell of a lot of people, right? But yeah. the capacity for uh, mobilization, they've got a 14 million man mobilization pool and those will take time to get there. And that's basically what we see at the Battle of Smolensk. The Germans kind of think the big border battles are over and they've just got to try to almost encircle Smolensk. We've almost done it. And then there's almost this shock of where are these guys coming from, from the east? Who are those guys? They're trying yeah. to break into the encirclement, but these are the, you know, the second echelon that are basically mm -hmm. being formed up around Moscow, around other cities further east because you get mobilized in your district. And then once you're mobilized and you've got your weapons and you've got everything, it takes time. And then you get sent to the front. And that's basically what the Germans are encountering. It's odd that they don't foresee that. Yeah. But that's, that's the, the nature of... Like, was it... They, they have these models, they have this mathematical model of how to conduct a war. But it seems that um, somehow some a large amount of very crucial data didn't get put into those equations. Well, that, that it could be that there's not that data put in there. That's I, I'd say that's also true of certain areas. There's also a very real human element where even when they're being presented with the problem, there's a tendency to look past that. And I think there's, there's two explanations for why they're seeing past it. One could be national socialism. There is a national socialist worldview. Now you might say, hang on, generals, I get it if you're a 13-year-old a or maybe at that stage, an 18-year-old who's been his whole life in a national socialist education and believes you know, absurd things. Oh, I'm just naturally better than everyone because I'm German. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay. I get that. But how does a German general who is much older. He's not gone through this. He would have been formed. But there were still problems in the German military um, culture uh, uh, surrounding ideas of, um, how best to put it, uh, what Hitler calls the primacy of will. This isn't mm -hmm. an, a Hitler concept. This predated um, national socialism. Um, uh, Germans used to call it Siegeswille or um, uh, Kampfgeist or something like this, where the spirit, you know, a good commander takes his men and he goes into battle 
and he dictates terms to the enemy, right? You can't be this weak-willed guy who I'm not sure, maybe we're going to do this, maybe we won't do it. Oh, okay. mm. think about all that. You've got to be that kind of leader. And, and this goes back to Satino's work when he looks at the German way of war and he's sort of saying, look, you know, Germans as a country in the middle of Europe, surrounded by potential enemies, had to end wars fast. So the culture had to be decisive battle, had to seek battle. We, have to, we don't just, you know, wait for the enemy to come on. We, we, we go and dictate the, 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 the Vernichtungsschlag, the, the war of another, the battle of the annihilation, right? We have to dictate these terms and we need those kinds of commanders. And that has to be German military culture because if we don't, uh, the guys on the other end of the country will, will attack us because we always yeah. face two front wars. So if that's already part of the culture and then you're in the Wehrmacht, which is a hyper um, sort of uh, masculine world and very national socialist. What does Hitler say in all those speeches? It's always about him. It's always about, mm-hmm. I changed Germany, right? And that's the kind of officer he looks to, you know? And this is the kind of guy who's going to have a great career. Because if you're the sort of person in the Wehrmacht who says, I don't know if we can do this. No, 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 I don't think we can do it. And for good reasons. Let me talk to you about the vehicles and the fuel and the consumption. Yeah. Excuse me, let's just get someone in here who's actually going to be able to do this. And then if you have yeah. someone who just says, yes, mein Führer, I will get that objective. In fact, I will drive beyond it. Uh, this is the man we needed. That other guy, who was he? And they know this. So there's a real problem. And maybe this is true of definitely the summer of 1941, but I think you see it much clearer in the autumn and even into the winter where they are not able to say these things. They know that they're in real trouble, but there's this cultural... I mean, for example, Guderian's writing letters to his wife because I've got all the letters and he's saying things like, this is a huge problem and no one's telling them this and no one's telling them that. Well, the question you would have is, you're a panzer commander, you have authority, why aren't you saying it? But he knows he can't because I am exactly that. I'm the great panzer commander. I'm the decisive one. I'm the one who's achieved all these victories. That's exactly how he sells himself in propaganda. That's exactly how he sells himself because he's got a propaganda company attached to his uh, panzer group. So he's very much the guy on you know, TV in the sense of the Wachenschau and so on. He's out there. He's that go-getter guy. And he's expecting everyone else to do that work. Oh God, why, is, why is no one passing on that we can't do this stuff? But mm. the problem is they're all thinking this way. And no one wants to undermine their career by being that doubter, that, that can-not-do guy. Um, yeah. But that's cultural. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's cultural, but it also seems to be very much something, in Guderian's case, he created. It's a, he created a monster. These, the, uh, I, the image he created himself kind of really uh, mired him in this, in this position that, uh, yeah, I am the ultimate panzer commander. I said, let's mechanize everything. Everything will be in panzers and, uh, and it, it will be unstoppable. And then he arrives um, at Tula with, what, 12 tanks left or something like that. And, uh, well, that's another interesting point, and you're absolutely right. He does get that, oh, we, and, and I think to people hearing what you say, they'll, they'll say, yeah, tanks drive things forward. That's right. That's what we learned from the Germans. But the interesting thing is, and this is, doesn't, this is nothing I can quantify, but just as an, as an observation, when I went through his letters, I think there's like 33, 34 letters we've got from, 19, from the second half of 1941. I actually bothered to count because, you know, once you've got them all into a computer, you can just do a word search. How many how many uh, references does he ever make to logistics supply? I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's like six or seven or something where he writes to his wife saying, oh, supplies are a goddamn problem. You know, I can't find nothing or just looking for how, much, how often does he mention fuel? How much does he mention ammunition? And he's often talking about 
because he likes to talk about a lot of the military stuff. Uh, oh, this guy's not letting me do this. This guy's not doing that. And complaining about the other commanders. But does he really understand? And, and he's only one man, but does he really understand what drives him forward? In other words, it's as important how many tanks you've got and how, how much ammunition you've got as it is how much fuel you've got or how many trucks are coming with provisions for the men or how much medical supply. That's yeah. as important. And I think modern day commanders get that it's a it's a holistic situation yeah. and there's not therefore and actually that's part of the culture that I, I read in Magagi's books that if you're the operations officer number one if you're the logistics officer geez how did you uh, you mustn't be very good you got into that and and, and intelligence is saying now that's just that's just completely absurd that they, they need them yeah. just the same as they need everyone else but everyone wants to be in operations yeah so yeah, yeah. everybody wants to be the the guy standing you know half out of the of the tank turret right yeah, yep. with the with the field glasses. Okay, yep. well we're get, running short on time, so I'm just going to ask uh, one question, one more question. What is the main lesson that you, you think we can draw today from Operation Barbarossa? When you say today, do you mean in context of like modern war and what's happening in Ukraine or so on, or do you mean about that period itself? I'm tempted to say let's look at Ukraine in 2023, but no, I think that we're we're let's say we get to the uh, 1945 uh, from that perspective and you look back and it's been, you know, four years of, uh, of hell. What is the last, the big lesson, I guess, that we should draw from that? Um, I would say perhaps the one thing I am struck by when I study all of this uh, German operations is, is hubris, right? This, this belief, mm. this megalomanic belief almost I mean, you look at the size of the Soviet Union. Why don't we invade and attack that? But even if you just look at, you know, U-boat operations, U-boats are going into the South Atlantic. Then you look on a global map and think, how far is that? How far could these things go? And and the idea that they're going to project warfare onto such a scale, that just strikes me as, it's not surprising when I think Hitler thinks that way. But again, our earlier conversation, these are military professionals. Um, you know, mm. Australia is a big country and some of our guys complain to me about, oh God, they're going to move this base to here. And in a modern age with all our modern sophisticated infrastructure and our armies not that big, good highways and rail and things like this. And they're saying they're thinking, well, it's going to be a hell of a lot of work. Now, in an context of an active global war against multiple major powers you've taken on the chinese you've taken on the russians you've taken on the americans you've taken on the british you've taken on what's left of the frame and all their constituent colonies as little old germany and okay yes they had a lot of success early on but a lot of it strikes me as hubris to start this to continue it and maybe also feeding into your earlier question how much did those german generals believe in this they're not writing in their private wartime diaries such as we have them. This is all going to end in disaster. There's absolutely no way we're going to win this thing. Even if we have hmm. short-term military success, economically, how do we square this circle? How do we go on like this? Where's yeah. the end point? And that's just, you know, that's not how it's seen in decades after the war. Decades after the war, we wrote for years uh, these histories of, oh, the Germans are carrying all before them, are they? And therefore, turning points where, you know, these knife-edge battles at Stalingrad and so on. Mm -hmm. Not really, not in my conception. It's, yeah, whether they get the last October factory or whatever is irrelevant. This thing is going to be decided by macroeconomic and population factors and 
how come the German generals don't see it? And maybe even subsequently, how come historians for decades afterwards didn't see it? Now, in fairness, we've had a lot of really good studies done. And yeah. a lot of those really good studies have come in the last few decades that have really illuminated various parts to put it all together and say, oh, yeah, this was going to be deeply problematic. But it also underlines why doing operational history today you know, if you've got any PhD students listening to these kinds of things, is really exciting because we, I think anecdotally people think, oh, the war has been worked out. I mean, what are you guys still writing about? Don't you know, Germany lost. But actually that, that story is a real evolution. And we've only relatively recently gotten a lot of the constituent parts. I'm also convinced there's whole areas out there. We talked about logistics. There is no single history of logistics on the Eastern Front. Someone should go out there and write a book about trains and trucks, you know, could be fascinating what we still discover. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, the train, trains and trucks and, and horses, that was what my father-in-law emphasized a lot. And they had the whole, you know, uh, either you put the rails together or you, uh, what they did a lot of was, you know, unload a train and load everything onto the next one, you know, with the larger. Yeah. And uh, he uh, told me about a few operations that he did where they messed that up <laughs> quite a lot. Just okay. sim something as simple as you change the destination cards on the box cars, right? And uh -huh. I, I thought, and when he first told me this, I thought, oh, yeah, big deal. Yeah, schoolboy prank. You snuck into the rail yard, you change these things around. And then I read in uh, Enemy at the Gates, about a big shipment that they got that Paulus received in uh, in Stalingrad of convicts. <gasps> uh, thanks, not what we were yeah. waiting for, but thanks. But glad you're thinking of us. I was going to say, and 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 how about some ammunition or some heating fuel or or something or food? God. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, these things. Yeah, the logistics really make a difference. And, and mm. uh, the other thing is, yeah, uh, the the mechanized army. There were a lot of horses, a lot of horses. So anyway, Indeed. but uh, I think, um, yeah, the time is, is really running short. So I want to thank you very, very much, David, for, for agreeing to, uh, to come on here. No worries. Thanks, mate. Bye-bye. So I just want to say one more thank you to Dr. David Stahl of the University of New South Wales in Canberra, Australia. Thank you again for your gripping and highly informative conversation with me and i hope to bring you back yet again for at some point maybe after we get to stalingrad uh, narratively not literally and thank all of you history buffs for listening to beyond barbarossa the podcast about the eastern front of the second world war to find previous episodes of beyond barbarossa visit the website beyondbarbarossa.ca or beyondbarbarossa.podbean.com, where you'll find maps and historical photos, and as well, all the links to books and other sources, like David Stahl's books. You can also listen to the episode on my own website, writtenword.ca, and click on the podcast button in the banner. I want to also thank all who have supported the podcast through Patreon. As I've said, until all Ukrainian refugees can return home safely, your financial support goes to charities that help Ukrainian refugees. You can find the link to the Patreon page on the beyondbarbarossa.ca page. Just It's up at the top. The link's at the top. If you like this episode, please consider following Beyond Barbarossa on your preferred podcasting app. I'd really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It, those really help spread the word to others who are interested in this subject. 
As always, if you find I've made any errors, please let me know. You can reach me by email at contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca or through the Facebook Beyond Barbarossa page. Original music was composed and recorded by Nicholas Burry. I'm Scott Burry. Until next episode, keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraina.